You know, I think kind of like a coach a little bit. You kind of have a game plan, and uh, this morning I was feeling really good about the game plan, and uh, it's like kind of coming out and fumbling your first two possessions, or, or Coach Wall maybe throwing away and Coach Boyd throwing away and having six turnovers in the first four minutes of a, of a quarter. Come out here, that's how I feel about what I did a little bit with, uh, with the announcements there. So hopefully I don't fumble this sermon. Y'all grab your Bibles, though. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 1 this morning. So Crystal Jones was just out of school, uh, right out of college. Just got her master's, actually. And she got a job in the inner city of Atlanta, Georgia. And she was going to teach first graders. And she got thrown into a situation in an inner city school that was overcrowded and a mess. She had no idea what to do. First day she shows up and she discovers in the first day to the first week that her little first graders, just young, precious children, because of overcrowding and not enough teachers in the school system, that she had a group of six and seven-year-olds that most of them could not identify numbers. Some of them could not tell her the alphabet. The majority of them could not write their own name. And some of them couldn't even hold a pencil. It was a disaster, a horrible situation. She had no idea what to do. She had no idea what to do with what, what was she going to do with these kids? These kids had no support at home. In fact, everyone in that class, from an outsider view, would probably say none of those kids were going to be or were exceptional students. But in less than a year, Crystal Jones had an entire class of kids who could read at least at the second grade, most of whom could read at the fourth grade level. How did she do it? I'll tell you at the end of the service. <laughs> what was her secret? I'll tell you at the end of the service. But before we get there, let's go to 1 Corinthians 1. Not many of us are exceptional either. And I don't mean that as an insult. I mean that because of what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, brothers and sisters, Bible's not written to us, but it is written, it is written for us, right? This includes us. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Church family, let's begin this morning by reminding ourselves that we are only here because of the gift of God. One gift, one life-changing word 
that has unending depth. We are here today worshiping, studying, encouraging, communing, blessing. We're here forgiven and free because of God's amazing grace. Wonderful grace. In a good church, the Tove Church understands that it exists in dispensing and encouraging and participating in grace. We are people who are agents of God called to bless and share the gift of grace to everyone we see. And the good church knows, and may we know with great humility, that today and tomorrow and the next day, that what is true now will be true in the future, that every one of us, and we need an amen behind this one, we are all still in need of a Savior. That's why we're here. A Savior who saves by grace. So this morning, before I pray for us and pray for our friends at the Methodist Church as they meet together, let's settle in and let's explore together before we commune our need for grace and our mission to give God's grace. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the reminder this morning. I need to be reminded daily that I am in need of a Savior. By myself, I'm doomed. And I know that's true for all of us, God. There's no such thing as a perfect church. But you, God, are perfect. And your grace is perfect. And Father, may we explore that grace today not as something that we use cheaply, but as something that changes our very core and our inside out. It becomes something that we give to the world because it is the greatest gift that you would save us when we are unworthy. We're not exceptional. We were the things that are not. We were foolish, but yet you gave us Jesus anyway. God, we lift up our friends and neighbors that worship this morning at the Methodist Church here in town. And we, like we've been praying for other churches and other believers, we pray for your goodness and for your will and your love to be seen there today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So grace, we all want it, right? We all want it. We even name people grace. We say grace. We use the word all the time. But in English, it's this word that's like love. It's been watered down. Grace means favor. Grace means gift. Grace means bestowing on something that they did not earn. But those words kind of don't mean a whole lot to us because they're words that are disconnected in some ways from grace. I can give you a gift that doesn't mean it's graceful. But grace, biblically, brings together all these ideas. And I want to give you some definitions of how grace works. So grace is two words biblically. First in Hebrew, and y'all can say this under your breath if you want to, is hain, hain. That's how you say it. It looks like kahan, but it is hain or hain. You gotta get a, like, I gotta clear my sinuses a little bit to say hain, right? It's hain. And in Hebrew, this shows up, this word shows up like this. Hain means favor. And it's, it's used like this in Psalm 42, a poet with a skilled tongue, 
or with lips, have lips of Hain. So it's an idea of a poet saying something beautiful is a grace to be given. It's a gift, right? In another place, Proverbs 1, 9, wisdom is seen as jewelry of grace upon your head and upon your neck. So to wear something beautiful is a gift of chain. <laughs> I love saying that. In another place, Genesis, Jacob robs his brother, right? Jacob the scoundrel, the weasel, his name means heel grasper. He's gonna get his way. He robs Esau, but then 20 years later, he comes back to make amends and he asks for Esau's favor. And the word is chain, his grace. Show me something that I can't get. And then in Esther, this word shows up among hundreds of other places. Esther goes to the king and asks for his favor as a gift. Have favor upon my people and the Israelites. The Hebrews are saved because she, for such a time as this, goes out and does her thing. It's a beautiful thing. So that's how the word is used. In the Old Testament, when you see the word grace or gift or favor, it is the word hain. Now in your New Testament, it is the word charis. And charis carries with it some of the same ideas. Charis is a gift. In Hebrew, it meant a gracious gift of favor, but it was also used in the word for what we have from the Spirit. When you have a gift of the Spirit, Encouragement, uh, service, uh, hospitality, leadership, whatever that is, the gifts of the Spirit are seen as a charis. They are a gift, a grace. Another one is gifts brought to us. This idea of charis in the New Testament brings with it the idea that if God gives you then you're supposed to respond to. Whatever gifts are brought to you by God to lead or serve are all grace that you're supposed to share. Does that make sense? Ephesians 2 and 8 says, for it is by this gift, this charis, you have been saved through faith. So what is grace? For a church that needs to be a place of grace, a good church, we would all agree, gives and lives by grace, what is grace? Well, there's hundreds of ways to define it, but I wanted to give you many today because it is favor and delight and the gift of God. And it is something that has been offered to each and every human ever created by the sacrifice of Jesus. And if it is the best of what we have to offer or what God has offered, then the good church takes that gift and that favor and delights in giving it out. A power. Grace is powerful because it has the power in it to change lives, to cast out fear, and to do the impossible. And I want to show you that this morning as we go back to 1 Corinthians. Now in Corinth... Corinth. If you know anything about the New Testament or Paul's letter to 
what we call 1 Corinthians, which is actually 2 Corinthians because there's an unknown letter that we've never found that Paul wrote to them first. And then between 1 and 2 Corinthians, he wrote another one. So what we really have is 2 and 4 Corinthians, but not to confuse you, we just have 1 and 2 Corinthians. Was that confusing? So 1 Corinthians is a special letter. And it's special because if you know anything about it, you know that this church is a disaster. They are a dumpster fire of a church rolling down a hill to crash into another dumpster fire, which is going to cause a train of dumpster fires to lead to a sewage plant. I don't know, something like that. They are a mess of a church. They are toxic they're full of scandals. We all know and have a feeling, or some of us have in, in here know what it be, is like to be part of bad churches, places of moral failure and toxicity. Well, this church, not to overstate it, but maybe I already have, is the father of all that. They're a mess. Here's a list of some of the things that Paul's going to mention about them. Now, if you don't know anything about it, this may be shocking to you. But here's what's going on in Corinth, the chaos in Corinth. There's deep divisions. Paul's going to deal with that in chapters 1 through 4. They're dividing and saying, well, I like to follow the teachings of Apollos. Well, I like to follow the teachings of Peter. And I like the teachings of Paul. And they're just all over the place, dividing up. I think we can probably relate. I like this guy. I like that guy. They're also morally failing. There is a man sleeping with his stepmom that we find out in chapter five. There's members that we find out in chapter six who are sleeping or suing uh, each other. Later on, there's men who are sleeping with prostitutes. We find that out in chapter six as well. So you not only have uh, legal strife, you have moral strife happening where men in the congregation are going down to the temple and sleeping with temple prostitutes. Women, young women are, are forbidding, or older women are forbidding young ladies from marrying, saying you can't do that, you shouldn't marry. They're controlling each other's lives. In chapters eight to 10, we find out that they're struggling with still going down and worshiping idols. In chapters uh, 11, which we talk about a lot at communion. The center of that whole idea of communion is that rich people are excluding poor people from communion. It would be like us saying, well, you didn't show up on time, so you don't get the bread and cup today. They were saying, let's take it all for ourselves, and then poor people who had to work on Sundays are showing up, and they're, they're out of food. It was a mess. There's even more. There was chaos in their worship gatherings. That's what he deals with in 12 through 14. And then even maybe most of all in chapter 15, this church has members that are denying the very centerpiece of Christianity, the resurrection. So wow, who wants to place membership at that church, right? <laughs> They're a mess. They are a mess. And Paul is aware of all this. Paul has spent one and a half years in Corinth. This is the second most time he spends out of any of his missionary journeys at any church. The only one that he spends more time with that we know of for sure is, is the Ephesians in Ephesus. He spent a year and a half with these people. He helped build this church. He's corresponded with them. He's kept up with them. He's invested in this church. So put yourself in his sandals for a little bit, right? Remember last week? Let's have a little empathy for Paul. And the question I want us to deal with 
is if this is Corinth and you're in charge of writing Corinth a letter, you've heard about this mess and we just listed all those things, eight or nine things there. What do you say? How would you start a letter to these people? Maybe to make that a little more helpful for us, maybe you think about you're wronged by a friend and you have a chance to get even. Our parents, we catch our kids doing something that embarrasses us. How do you respond? Or maybe you're frustrated with your job and your boss and you have a chance to send that nasty email. How do you start that email? Or maybe you're just disillusioned with the church. They aren't responding like you hoped. How do you respond? That's where Paul's at. How do you respond? Let's look at how Paul responds. This is incredible. And may this, may this scripture fall on ears ready to receive this incredible passage, this incredible word from God. Here's how Paul responds. This place is a mess. And he says to them, and starting in verse two, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him I have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, come on, church family. That is not how I would have started the letter. I would have been like, what's up? The teens and girls and men and women, everybody hearing this, did you hear this? What's Paul begin with? He begins with the one thing that changes lives. He begins with grace. He reminds them of why they even have a connection because Paul knows how powerful grace really is. I tried to imagine myself in this room when Paul was working on this letter, speaking with him about it. So I imagine it going something like this, me saying to Paul, Paul, what are you up to? Paul saying, well, I'm writing a letter to our friends in Corinth. <laughs> oh, and maybe I'd have some like, oh, you mean crazy Corinth? They're a mess. What are you going to say to them, Paul? Well, I haven't really finished the letter. I'm kind of working on it. Oh, Paul, I've heard rumors about this church. Holy cow, did you see what so-and-so from their church put on their Facebook the other day? Holy cow. He posted a picture on his Instagram. They were down at the temple of Artemis. They're a mess. I heard one of their elders was telling everybody, shut up in their church. I heard one of their deacons ate all the bread the other day. I mean, I, I, would, I could go on and on and on. And Paul would say to me, well, I haven't really finished it yet. 
And I might ask Paul, well, how are you going to start it? What did you say? And Paul says, here's what I'm going to start with. I'm going to start with grace. I'm going to tell them in the first few letters, or the first few words, I'm going to call them brothers and sisters. And then I'm going to remind them that we have fellowship in Jesus. And I'm going to remind them that there is something that we share in that transcends everything else. It's grace. And I believe Paul begins with this, and I believe a good church begins with grace because number one, church family this morning, out of three things I'm going to give you really fast, is grace resists fear. It resists it. Paul said this in verse three and four, it's not on the screen, grace and peace to you from our God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God because, for, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. You ever notice this? You can't be thankful for something you fear. You can't be thankful for someone or something or some situation that you fear. Grace resists fear. He's gonna have to talk about some very difficult things with them. He's gonna have to face some fears with them. He's gonna have to have some hard conversations, but he begins with grace because instead of being controlled by fear, he knows that a good church, a good follower of Jesus is grateful for the work of God, even when the work of God seems to be going way off course. So he begins with grace. Now let's dig into this a little bit. Why is Paul thankful for Corinth? Why is he thankful for him? I'm thankful for coffee. So let's, let's, let's do it with coffee. We'll do a little analogy with coffee. Anybody here with me, you thankful for the gift of coffee, you know? Whoever was the first person that was like, hmm, this bean sounds good. Let me pour some hot water over it, you know? I don't know how those things are invented, but I am thankful for that person that, that did that. Let's pour some hot water over a bean and drink it, you know, because coffee's just hot bean water, right? But it's really good hot bean water. We don't do that with black beans or pinto beans, like go home and brew some pinto beans today. Mmm. Mmm. Yummy, right? <laughs> we don't do that. But I'm thankful for coffee. It's this little gift in the morning that I get to take part in. I make my coffee last all day long. I like a slow burn of caffeine from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. That's my goal. And I don't care if it's cold, hot, lukewarm. I don't care. As long as I'm getting the slow burn of caffeine. That's what I like it for. But coffee, I'm thankful for it because it does something for me, Right? So why is Paul thankful for Corinth? Are they able to do anything for him? No. They're a mess. They can't do anything for him. His thankfulness isn't connected to what Corinth can accomplish. His thankfulness is connected to what God can accomplish. And that's how grace resists fear. He's not afraid to go to them. He's not afraid to keep working with them. He's not afraid to keep on the mission of God because he's thankful for them, not because of what they're doing, but because of what God, through his mighty grace, can still accomplish. And might we remind ourselves 
But that is why we're thankful for each other. You know, we often think about church and what we can get out of it, right? We're consumers. We talked about this yesterday at a little retreat we had. We often think about church only in terms of what we can get. Many of us maybe even have that attitude this morning. What can I receive from church this morning? But that is, that's, that's worldly thinking. Christian thinking is upside down because of grace. And Christian thinking says not what can I get, but what can I pass on? What can I give? May we be reminded this morning, guys, that you may not have a desire to give somebody else grace to give somebody else forgiveness. But may we be reminded this morning that it's not your grace to give. You don't own the grace of God. We don't own it. So it's not ours to choose who gets it. It's ours to dispense so that the world can see the one who gave it. So we have nothing to fear. That's the power of grace. Truth without grace only leads to fear, but grace and truth in equal measures can lead to life change. And a good church filled with grace learns forgiveness and sees transformed lives and resists that call of fear, all because we start to know, like Paul does, that God is at work. We have nothing to fear because we serve a Savior whose grace can wash away anything. And we're all evidence of that. Right? Anybody here on their own? Let's see if we got any hands. Anybody here and like, oh, you saved yourself? Right? Washed all my sins away, just want you guys to know. <laughs> right? Nobody's here for that. That is the power of grace and because of that grace then we have nothing to fear. Somebody comes in that scares us. Somebody comes in that's different than us. Somebody comes in that speaks a different language than us. What do we have to offer them? Fear? Well, we don't know how to connect with that person. No, we offer them grace because God does. He knows what he's doing. And second, grace is good for a church. It makes a good church, not only because it resists fear, but grace trusts the grace giver. Look at what Paul said, and we're gonna skip all the way down to verse eight. This is so good. This is how he starts the letter. He says, he, who? Who's he? God, right? He will also keep you firm. Man, this church is shaky. It is a mess. It's not standing on firm ground with all the things they're accepting. Paul even says to the, to the church, you guys are proud of the man that's sleeping with his stepmother. You think you're so spiritual. You think that's a good thing. They are a mess. But Paul also says to them, he will keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless Oof. on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what I mean. None of us are capable of making someone else follow Jesus, listen to the Spirit, and walk in a heavenly future. None of us are capable of making this church a church of good grace. Alone, we are a mess. Just in this little room right here, there's hundreds of things that we don't agree on. We don't always understand each other or appreciate each other. We are selfish. We like power. We like hierarchy. We struggle with prayer. We struggle with praying for our enemies. We struggle with praying for each other. And we struggle with being motivated out of love. That's the truth, right? Or at least it is for me. If Paul wrote a letter to us, it would have some warnings and corrections for sure. 
But the beauty of the family of God is this. James Dunn said it this way. The Holy Spirit, by through grace, transcends human ability to transform human inability. The Holy Spirit transforms human ability so that we can do things we weren't able to do before because we trust the grace giver. What we can't do, Paul couldn't fix Corinth. What we can't do as a church, we can't fix each other, God can. And a good church of Tove, a church of grace, trust the grace giver so that we can have new eyes. Because of grace, I no longer have eyes of judgment or hate or contempt. I now have eyes of hope. When I see you and you see me, we should see each other with eyes of hope. Look what God can do in you because we hope in the way of grace. Hope in the way of knowing that the same blood that has covered me and transformed me is covering and can transform you. So Paul says, he will keep you firm. So church family, I think the best way to practice that is this, super practical. Extend the same grace to others as you do to yourself. That's a really practical way to live. Because man, it's easy to extend grace to ourselves, right? I can rationalize about anything. But what would it look like if we started to extend grace to others that we extend to ourselves? One more verse. Here's what Paul says to wrap up verse nine. He says, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Notice this detail. This is what I love about this passage. Verses three and four, he talks about how grace is something that casts out fear. He can be firm and assured of what God is doing among them. Verse eight, he's saying to them, this kind of grace is something that you can share in and you can know and trust that the grace giver is going to transform. But verse nine, this is what gets me because I wouldn't want a fellowship with that church. None of us want a fellowship with a toxic church. But Paul extends grace and he says, God is faithful who has called you into fellowship. Man, that just, this week when I was reading that in my, in my study time, that just knocked me back. Almost went through my window behind me. I mean, knocked me back. Because what he's saying is grace is not only something that resists fear and something that calls us to trust the grace giver, but grace is something that is participatory. Grace participates. To take or receive grace, to want grace is a great thing, but that's only part of the story. In the ancient world, in the time of Jesus, it would be unheard of for somebody to receive a great gift of grace then walk away without it changing what they did, without it being effective in their life, without being, it being effective in their life, moving them in some way. It would be unheard of to receive a gift and then just go about your merry way. Grace abounds because it is transformative. It participates. It makes us do things different. 
Jesus talked about this in Matthew 13 when he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a field that a man bought and then found a treasure, or he didn't buy the field, he found a treasure in the field and then he sold everything he had so he could go get that treasure, right? What's the treasure? It's the kingdom. And what's the kingdom based on? Grace. It's worth throwing everything apart, selling everything we have, giving everything away to be a part of. It's a participatory thing. And it's with that heart and mind that we lead up to communion this morning. That grace participates. We commune, yes, because it's something that Jesus desires and commands for us to do, but we ultimately commune because it's participatory. It is a grace to receive bread and cup is to receive something that I did not buy or earn. Amen? It is something that I get to take part in as a gift. So we're going to commune for a moment, and then I'm going to tell you the end of the story. You remember Crystal Jones' story? You guys are like, oh, you've been talking a long time. We're going to come back to that. But before we do that, we're going to commune. And our guys if you're, that are serving, if you want to come on up, the six guys and our guys in the back, if you want to go ahead and get ready. I wanted us to commune later today because I wanted us to be reminded before we commune that this is not just something you participate in to receive the grace, but it is something you participate in to offer grace. And so this morning, I want you to think about not just you and the cross, I want you to think about this morning us and the cross. I want you to think about who we are together in this. And maybe one way you can do that this morning before Doug prays for us is as you receive this bread and as you receive the cup here in a moment after that, to share in a grace with somebody near you. Somebody beside you, somebody behind you, somebody in front of you, to be thankful for them, to reach up and to say, I'm so thankful we share in the body of Christ together, or I'm so thankful that the blood of Christ covers me as it covers you, or whatever you want to say. But I want to challenge you in that, because God didn't just bestow grace on you, he bestowed grace on all of us. And when we commune, it's a reminder of that. And so we're going to take part in that communion, and I want you to be a part of it, participate in it, participate in the thought that you know that, man, it is God who is faithful. He's going to make you strong in the end. He's going to present you blameless before God someday, but he's also going to do that for your neighbor. That's a wonderful thing. Amen? Man, that's good. I love that about God. He's so good that he saved my worst enemy. He's willing to save my worst enemy. Back to Crystal Jones. First year teacher, thrown into the pit, thrown to the wolves. <laughs> parents that didn't connect, parents that didn't care, kids that couldn't even identify numbers, letters, some that couldn't even hold their own pencil. But by the end of the year, they were reading, they were doing great. So what'd she do? 
What was her secret? Well, the first week, she just kept thinking and thinking, what do I, how do I motivate these first graders to want to learn? And she had an idea about the end of the first week. She realized that her school that she was teaching at, the big kids in that school were third graders. And she noticed out on the playground, all the first graders wanted to be like third graders. And so she came in the next Monday and she asked the class, who in here wants to be like third graders? Ooh, the kids, all their hands shut up because they were bigger and they could run faster and they did knew everything and they were smarter and they could read and they could write. And so she promised them. That day, she said to that little class, you're gonna become something you never thought possible. By the end of this year, you first graders are gonna become third graders. The kids looked at her and she started to explain how. She said, we are gonna be scholars in here. From now on, you will no longer call each other by your first name. You will call each other Scholar Jones or Scholar Hobson or Scholar uh, McClendon or even Scholar Shane Sawyer, you know. You will call each other by scholar and last name. First graders didn't know what a scholar was, so she taught them. She said, a scholar is someone who lives to learn and is good at learning. So these little first graders got really good at calling each other scholar. That's what they started to call her. It was no longer Miss Jones, it was Scholar Jones. And everywhere they went, whether it was in line at the, at the cafeteria or whether it was going down the hall, they referred to each other, Scholar Jones, Scholar Smith, fill in the blank. Well, one day, one of the kids, early on, after she got that habit in them, had to leave from school. So over the intercom, came on, and I don't know the name of the young person that had to leave. The principal called out and said, would Scholar so-and-so, we'll just call him him or her Scholar Smith, will Scholar Smith please come to the office? Your mom's here to pick you up. Well, the first graders started to grumble, started to talk amongst themselves, and, and Crystal Jones couldn't pick it out, what was actually going on with that? And uh, she asked him, why are you grumbling? And she assumed it was because they were sad because one of their classmates was gonna have to leave and that classmate was getting it better because they didn't have to, that classmate wouldn't have to sit through another day of of scholarly first grade learning. She was disappointed. She thought she had lost them. So she asked him, why are y'all grumbling? What are y'all saying? And one of the kids spoke up for the class. And said, well, we're disappointed because Scholar Smith is leaving and she's going to miss out on all the scholarly learning we're going to do today. That's when she knew she had them. And by the end of the year, these kids all excelled. They all passed all their tests. They all did great. They were all reading at new levels because they had accepted a new level of thinking. I'm pretty sure in Corinth, that's what Paul was up to. He could have written them and said, you mess of a so-called, so-called Christians, you don't even deserve the name. But he wrote to them, reminding them, it's by grace that you're here and our God's not done with you. And it's by grace that he's going to transform you. And just like Those kids said in the first grade class, it's because Scholar Smith is gonna miss out on all the scholarly work 
Guys, that's our motivation. You know why we ought to be inviting? You know why we ought to be sharing the grace? You know why we ought to be having uh, more people sign up to do friend speak? It's because we don't want to miss out on all the Christ-like work God is doing among us. We don't want anybody in Canadian to miss out on Go Weekend and Trunk or Treat or Bible Class or Wednesday Night Meals because God is doing something among Christian Doug and Christian Jay and Christian Stephanie and Christian whoever, fill in the blank, right? I could go around the room. God is at work because of his grace because he has taken messy people and in baptismal waters has washed us clean and then he didn't stop at baptism. He has continued to transform each and every one of us by his grace. And so we, may we be like a group of first graders today and go, you know what? I may be a mess, but my Father in heaven has called me son and daughter. He has called me an heir with Christ. And he has called me not sinner, he has called me saint. And may we live that out. So if you need that grace today, Man, it's here for you. May we stop pretending, guys, that we've got it figured out. This front row is always empty on Sundays. Why? Because we think we have it figured out. <laughs> if we were honest, everybody would respond. Last week, how many of you told me, man, I wanted to take off my shoes and come up there with you? Why didn't you? Because we think we have everything figured out. Or we think that somebody else thinks we have everything figured out. We're only here by grace. We're not fooling anybody. Rick, am I fooling anybody? I'm a mess. Rick knows me. Are you fooling me? No, right? I love you. You're a mess. But we're both here by the love of Jesus. Golly, that's good, isn't it? And so let's not fool each other. Let's give grace to each other. Let's stand together. Let's sing Let's be a church of grace, offering the best we have to offer to the world God's grace that transforms.